0: Welcome to God's Word Community Church Sermon Broadcast. The books of Thessalonians written by the Apostle Paul are so special because they show us what a truly good church looks like. We hope you enjoy the kind of meaty spiritual food from God's Word that we offer here at GWCC. And Paul, in chapter 4, then turns back to teaching. I think it's kind of interesting that in this relationship with this young church, Paul knows that he's not done teaching them yet. And so we've got three chapters devoted to their relationship and what an example they are and how they're living. But there's still more things for them to know. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we get two very, very interesting subjects. Subject number one. What does love mean in our lives? How do we do love? Subject number two is what about the end time? What about the time when Jesus comes back? The Thessalonians were worried, you know, I thought Jesus was going to come back in our lifetime. You know, mom's dead. What's going to happen to mom now? She didn't last until Jesus came back. For us living here in 2014, that seems like a weird question. But back in these days was the first time when the, when the return of Christ was being talked about. So next week, God willing, we're going to get a chance to go into the thing that you have heard famously referred to as the rapture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 in Latin is the only place in the whole New Testament where the word rapture occurs. It's the only place you will find that concept in the New Testament. And so we're going to get a chance to talk about that special day when the voice of the archangel will be spoken and the dead in Christ will be raised first. We're going to get a chance to dig into that next week. So I want to highlight that for you. But in the beginning of chapter 4, we're going to get a little bit earthy about the subject of love. You'll notice at the beginning of this chapter, and this may make you laugh, the preacher, Paul, says, finally... Finally, then, my last point, and he goes on for two more chapters. I thought you'd get a kick out of that. Finally, chapter 4, chapter 5. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and we urge. What's the difference between those two? We have an apostle making a specific request to a church that he has started That's a big deal already, right? Urge brings along this idea that the apostle wants to come alongside them and he wants to keep encouraging them to go in a particular direction. It lets you know that what he's getting ready to say he considers to be very important. This is not something he wants the church to forget. We ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus Okay, so what he's getting ready to say is something that the Lord Jesus himself is going to be watching them in. That as you received from us, so he's saying, I know you've heard this before, but I want to bring back to your attention how important it is, how you ought to walk. Now the word walk is a metaphor that Jesus used often that we sometimes see in the Old Testament when we're warned not to walk in the way of the wicked or hear in the Apostle Paul how we walk. Now obviously not walking in the way of the wicked does not mean if the wicked use Ritchie Highway we shouldn't use Ritchie Highway, right? <laughs> the word walk in the Bible one of my favorite teachers used to translate it very simply this way. He used to say our walk is our habit of life. What is our habit of life? What is our habitual way to live? And so you see how that fits in here, that you walk, that you set your habit of life to please God. You know, I can't help but when I see these words to think about how differently people talk about faith in this time that we live in. People in our time think that what God is looking for is to believe that he exists and that they have positive feelings toward him. That's how our culture, our land, seems to define what God is looking for from us. Notice that when the apostle who had this personal encounter with Jesus and has a personal walk with Jesus When an apostle talks about this, he talks about shaping our habits of life so that they will be pleasing to God. This God actually is the supreme authority in the whole universe. And when he calls us to be with him, being obedient to his lordship is the very first step You're doing it how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, but that you may do so more and more. Wow. Gives you the impression that this idea of obedience to God, of pleasing God, is a process of transformation that we continue in, that our motivation keeps getting raised in, that we would please him more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And then notice verse 3. For this is the will of God. You know, I have heard, you've probably heard too, I've heard so many people say, I just want to know what God's will is for my life. And I always want to say, how's your Bible reading doing? Because if you're wondering what the will of God is for your life, it's going to start with the Word of God. In fact, most of the things that we fret about the most, whether they're in the Word of God or not, and I'm not picking on you guys in particular. I'd have said this anyway. But we ask questions like, do I take this job or that job? What is God's will for me in this? Do I move to this place or do I move to this place? I just wish I knew what God's will is. And you know, the funny thing is, I don't see a whole lot of stress in the Bible on decisions like that what I see a lot of stress in the Bible on is what kind of people are we going to be whichever of those choices we make. We may have some freedom. That, that free will that he gave us may be there for a reason. But whether we look like his children or not, whether we act like his children or not, whichever of those choices we make, that's a big hairy deal. And I want you to notice that here in verse 3, he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the process of becoming more and more holy. Ooh, what's that? Holy means more of our thinking, more of our doing, being lined up with what God is looking for from us we begin to look like his person more and more and more, like he owns us. would make sense that he owns us. He bought us, right? The blood of that perfect lamb, without blemish, without defect. He purchased, I don't belong to me anymore. And the process of not belonging to me is in fact a process. How do I become so I look more and more, like I am not ruled by the lordship of Mark, but the lordship of Jesus. How do I continue that process to belong to Him more and more and more? This is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, when we get to this chapter, Paul is going to focus on a very particular theme when it comes to our sanctification. He talks about our sanctification. It's not this. It's this. Now, when he starts talking in this direction, I wonder if it's because he knew that in Thessalonica, the Greeks were famously free in their lovemaking. And it may be that even though the Thessalonian church was a good church, it may be that Paul still knew that they were still struggling in some of these areas in their lives. So he says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain. That means stop doing sexual immorality. In the old King James Bible, you're going to find the old word fornication in this place. Fornication in English tends almost exclusively to refer to premarital sex. But the word that is in the Greek, the word translated here sexual immorality, is the word porneia. And you've seen this word before, haven't you? Because our culture is very aware of the issue of porn agraphae graphe means something that's pictured or written down. So pornography is what is written down or pictured that has to do with porn, porneia. What is porneia? You see that the translators here, and what's interesting is almost every modern English translation has gone this direction, has used the expression sexual immorality. That's not sexual immortality. That's something totally different. (laughs) Sexual immorality. Sexual immorality has a very specific definition. And the reason that I can offer you this definition is by doing with this word what is called usage. Usage in a grammatical sense is to go back in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and look at every single time this word is used. What defines the meaning of a word? Sometimes we tell you where a word came from. Like you always hear when people run into the word power in the New Testament and they look in the Greek and they find out that the word power in the New Testament is the word dunamis and it's what led to the English word dynamite. So you hear modern preachers say, we got to reach back and get that dynamite of God, you know. Obviously dynamite didn't exist back then. So sometimes etymology, where a word comes from, doesn't continue to be what a word means. What actually defines the meaning of a word is how it's used. How do we use it? When you use this word, when you follow this word porneia through the Old Testament, where it was translated into Greek in an old version called the Septuagint, or in the New Testament, what you find quite simply is this, and this is your definition for the word, pornea, sexual immorality, refers to every single kind of sex that you can do with somebody else that is not covered by the covenant of heterosexual marriage. every single kind of sex that you can do with someone else that is not covered by the covenant of heterosexual marriage. You will find the word porneia used as a synonym through the whole Bible for every one of those categories. If a married person has sex with somebody that isn't his spouse, we call that adultery. In a more generic sense, the Bible will also call it porneia. If you find homosexuality, there are specific words for homosexuality, but it is also addressed by the generic word porneia. If you find sex happening just outside of marriage, what we would sometimes call premarital sex, it may be referred to, as in the book of Ezekiel, a sex that happens before marriage. An inappropriate degree of physical intimacy for the level at which the covenant has not been given yet. But it will also be referred to as porneia. So that's how to understand the appearance of the word sexual immorality in the Bible. You will find pornea. Translated by the English words sexual immorality, that generic general expression in almost every modern English Bible now. Now, verse 4 is a verse that you are going to see translated radically different in almost every English Bible that you can see. And it is an extremely difficult verse to translate Because the translators are afraid of offending you. 1 Thessalonians 4.4 is almost unique in the whole Bible. And I'm going to go ahead and be bold and tell you what this verse means. In the English Standard Version, hey, as a pastor you end up doing counseling with a lot of people. And a lot of questions come to the fore. And... People privately ask pastors and and Bible Bible teachers all kinds of questions because they're wrestling with issues. They want to know what has to do with their sanctification and what doesn't. Paul says in verse 3, It is the will of God, your sanctification, that you would abstain from porneia, that you stop doing it. That each one of you, now I'm reading from English Standard, that each one of you should know how to, you see the word, control, And then you see the expression his own body in holiness and honor. The problem here is how do we translate this word that here is translated control and how do we translate the word which here is translated body? Because I will tell you that neither of these words is normal for what's here in the Greek. The word control, translated control, is the word to handle or to hold. Many English translations, the translation you get won't sound like that. The word here which is translated body is not the Greek word soma. Which is by far the normal word in Greek for body. You'll see some Bibles translate this word as wife. When, when the translation wife appears, then the verb gets changed to to have your own wife. But it's not the word for have, and it's not the word for wife. What we have here is the word skuas, which means vessel or bottle. What Paul literally says here, that you don't live out your lives as the pagans do in rampant immorality, but you learn how to hold or handle your own bottle in honor and holiness all of your days. It is my conviction, and I'm not alone in this, In fact, if you look at the New English Translation and look at the advanced translators' notes in the NET, the NET was headed as a Bible translation by Daniel Wallace, who is one of the top five textual scholars on the whole planet. And the whole team working under Daniel Wallace translated the Bible and provides you with more translators' notes in that Bible than in any Bible you'll find. I believe that 1 Thessalonians 4.4 is the clearest reference to masturbation in the entire Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. One of the reasons this is so important to us is that we have followed a tradition where, for example, in the long period of the Roman Catholic Church, masturbation was treated as a sin. In fact, a passage in the book of Genesis that has nothing to do with masturbation whatsoever actually gave its name to that practice for a long period of time. In Genesis, we find out about a man named Onan who abused the wife that he had by having sexual relations with her but not allowing her to conceive a child, which was absolutely critical for her welfare. In that system, he would, as the Bible says, and I apologize that this is earthy and indelicate, but I'm just telling you what's there. This is PG-13 stuff here. He would end up spilling his seed on the ground rather than allowing her to conceive a child. And so his name, Onan, got got taken, and if you look in old dictionaries of English, you will actually find the word Onanism. You can type the word onanism into Google, and you'll get a definition. For a long, long time, people mishandle the word onanism as a reference to masturbation, which it isn't. It's basically a reference to a kind of active spousal abuse. I'm going to say simply, before I move on, that masturbation is nowhere forbidden in the entire Bible either in Old Testament or New Testament. And here in 1 Thessalonians 4.4, it actually looks like that Paul recommends that there's a kind of masturbation which can be done in holiness and honor that would help the Christians avoid the practice of living their lives in lust, as do the pagans. You'll see how this flows. And translating bottle as wife would be very difficult to do, given the fact that there's no reference to marriage in the whole context it would be a contextually difficult translation to make if you understand what i'm saying not in the passion of lust like the gentiles who don't know god when i say this i'm preaching something that is almost forgotten in churches today it has almost been abandoned this idea that living our lives in sexual immorality is characteristic of people who don't know God. It's important for us to know that. What's happened with churches all over the United States is that we have fallen into the old view of religion that happened among the Greeks that has happened all over the world that really draws this line that how I live my life morally really has nothing to do with my relationship with God. That I pretty much can choose whatever path that I want, and he's going to be okay with us. The night that I was converted, I got yelled at by my girlfriend at that time because I let her know we were going to have to change our practices. And the last words I ever heard from her mouth were, my God and I, we have a hundred understanding. And that's when we hung up. That's when she hung up. It's important for us to know that this is not a matter of private understanding. It's not a matter of private interpretation. That, in fact, this issue of lifestyle is characteristic of a lifestyle of someone that doesn't know God. Now, that doesn't mean we beat people up who are outside of Christ. But it does mean that as we encourage each other to grow in holiness, we recognize the time in which we live. And we encourage each other to continue to grow in purity that each of you should know how to hold his own bottle in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, but that no one would transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. You know, our culture is so schizophrenic about sex. Our culture is obsessed with sex but has no sense of the power of it. You know, even when I was in high school, back before I was serious about my relationship with God, I could always tell when my friends had begun having sex. I could always tell because it would change the way they communicated with each other. And one of the patterns that I began to notice is that after sex begun to happen in a couple outside of marriage... And what would happen is that one of them would get more attached to the relationship and the other one would get less attached. That one person would become more casual and the other person would become more intense. And I began to see this all the time. I took this perception with me into my first college place that I ever went to. And I kept seeing the same pattern repeated. People that were happy and enjoying each other's conversation over and over and over again and then they would begin their sexual intimacy. The psychological intimacy, the personal intimacy, would then stop. They would end up like they were aimed in two different directions, and I could almost call the day when they had begun their physical intimacy because the psychological intimacy didn't catch up, didn't keep up, after the relationship became sexual in nature. You see what Paul is saying here, and this is something that our culture doesn't want to believe. Our culture wants to believe that sex is just something that you can do with your body and it has nothing to do with who you are, your psychological health, any of those things. We can we can do whatever we want to with our body and it's going to be consequence free. And it's simply not the truth. I remember when I first started working at at a Red Lobster when I was finishing my Master's of Divinity, I had two friends there who were women on that staff. They were both in their young 30s. They were both attractive women. They were two of my very best friends. And one of the funny things that I noticed about my friends is how they struggled to stay connected with the men they would fall in love with. Because by the time I knew them, they had had so many partners that they found that it was difficult for them to stay attached to a man for more than a month or two that their sense of connection, their sense of romance, their sense of being in love, they had a hard time staying in love now by the time I knew them. I really felt in my heart, I felt a lot of compassion toward them. I saw a demonstration of this idea done with a piece of duct tape. And, you know, the people at the beginning of the row have to have some courage to do this. But I've seen this used when you have, you know, hundreds of youth drawn together and we're trying to teach the youth about purity. So you take this nice, fresh piece of duct tape and you, you, the people that are at the front of the row, you stick it to their legs and then you pull it back off. And the first few of them are going to holler, ow! And then you get to person four, person five, the duct tape starts coming off a little easier. You get to person eight, nine, or ten, it's coming off very easy. And then by the time you get to person 15, the duct tape hardly sticks at all. And you know, the funny thing is, that's how our spirits are. The covenant of sex, the covenant of marriage, is about a kind of intimacy that is supposed to bind people together, soul, spirit, physically, certainly. But it's supposed to be a unity that draws all of our dimensions together. That person becomes your co-parent, your co-partner, your spiritual ally, your brother or sister in Christ. It is a multi-layered, multi-level sort of thing that sex is supposed to be among us. When you look at the alternative sexual community, people who end up having sexual relationships with hundreds of people over the course of their lifetime. The psychological correlations are terrible. They have the highest rates of suicidal ideation, major depression, absolutely out-of-control drug use. The sexual lifestyle becomes tremendously destructive to what they are as human beings. Our culture is clueless about this. Obsessed with sex, but with no clue of the power of it. Not to mention the fact that if we actually conceive a child, now there exists a new human being whose life has eternal consequences. And what have we done now with children in our country? The local school, Glen Burnie High School, has got more than 40 high schoolers there who are homeless. They're sleeping in cars. They're sleeping on back porches. Our, our culture doesn't realize the consequences of its actions. So God is watching. He knows how sex, which is uncovenanted, creates damage. And notice how he says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gave you his Holy Spirit. Why does he say that? Don't we always refer to the Spirit of God as the Holy Spirit? When Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 talks about our body being a temple of the Holy Spirit, it's in the context of talking about sex. And how do we live with our bodies in one direction while His Spirit, who is striving for holiness in us, very much wants us to go a different direction? And then we see now concerning brotherly love. You see, in in the first half of 1 Thessalonians 4, what we see is two statements about love. One is, don't do love like this. Don't do it this way. This creates damage. It's out of step with the holiness that God wants to do with you. It is in conflict with the Holy Spirit within you. Don't do love this way. Do love this way. Philadelphia? We have to move to Pennsylvania? (laughs) (laughs) most of us when we think about christian love we think about that marvelous word agape and agape is this extremely muscular word spiritually speaking about a kind of love that is not caused by the person that we're loving it's a love that we decide to give whether the other person is lovable or not i choose to do my very best for you you know Whether I like your race, whether I like your attitude, whether I like your social demographics, whether I like what you did to me or not, I'm going to choose to love you on purpose. That's agape. And that's the love that shows up in John 3.16. For God so had agape for the world, and it's not because we made him feel warm and fuzzy. We didn't. Exactly. He loved us in spite of the fact that our behaviors are offensive to him. He loved us in spite of that, and that kind of love is agape. So what is phileia? Probably half a dozen words for love in the Greek, and I don't know if you've heard me say this before, but I think that phileia is probably the most fun of the Greek words for love. Fun in the sense of reaching the deepest, of meaning the most. Phileia is the kind of love that we have for each other as we get to know each other, as we respect each other, as we genuinely enjoy each other's personality and what we see in one another, that we experience respect and all of those great feelings that we have for our very, very best friends. If you call somebody your best friend, that person is where you have placed a truckload of your philea. Philea is respect it's fondness. It's affection. It's care. It's all those sorts of things. What's Adelphia? Adelphos in Greek is the word for brother. Adelphos is the word for brother. Adolphe, sister. Philadelphia is brotherly love. That's why they call that city what they call that city. What we've got there is an idea, brothers and sisters. Now, I'm sure this is going to totally shock you. But wouldn't it be amazing if the New Testament church was the kind of place where the longer we worshiped God together and the longer we tried to serve Him together, the better we would actually feel about one another. That's actually what's supposed to happen in church. We are supposed to bond. We are supposed to develop respect and yes, affection for each other. I have heard people say, and I've heard it said in church, why why is it that so many nasty things happen in church? I've heard someone say, well, the Bible tells me that I have to love you, but it doesn't say I have to like you. (laughs) Gee, I really want to go there. You know, twist my arm. I want you to notice that 1 Thessalonians 4 contains a very specific encouragement that we would learn to like each other. And that the longer we worship God together and the more we serve one another, the deeper that that mutual respect and love and affection, not infection, Mr. Ellison, affection (laughs) becomes. Concerning brotherly love, I want you to notice how strongly the Apostle Paul feels about this. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anybody to write to you. Obviously, he sees the Thessalonians as being particularly good at this. For you yourselves have been, and I love this, God taught as one word. Theo God taught. You've had God in you and because you've had God in you you've been walking in this path of transformation and that path of transformation has created this result in you. I can see it. I can see your Philadelphia. I can see even that your Philadelphia is divine in its origin. That's cool. That's like way cool. That's the church I want to be in. You, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been God-taught to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, do this more and more. What do you tell a a church who is excellent in Philadelphia? Good job. Keep doing it. Do it more. Uh, What's our score on Philadelphia this week? Oh, that's great. Do it more. This is how the Apostle feels about this. That our love and our affect and our respect, our, our respection would keep growing. And that it would be the kind of thing that other people can see. Do you see that? your love for all the brothers. I tell you, I I don't have to spend much time reflecting on what I've seen in churches in my lifetime to know that this would change churches in the United States. For churches to be strong in Philadelphia, for them to be committed to Philadelphia, for them to have the kind of Philadelphia that gets reported all over the place because they do it so well, that would change churches that I've seen. I served a church, in fact, the church where I was converted, I came back and ministered in for a time. And it was the weirdest thing in the world to have an experience in a church of only about 130 people to know from the leadership team in that church that they cared that we ministered to this part of the people that went to that church, but we don't care about these people that go to this church. If you had a direct connection to the friend or family members of that leadership team, you better be there at the hospital as soon as that person gets put in. I want you to know that I had one of those elders tell me when I went to go see his mother in the hospital. Oh, you didn't have to do that. Weird, isn't it? But even if, if 22 people are in line to see one of the members of that team when he goes into the hospital, boy, the minister better be there too. I chose to go there two days later when he by himself had been feeling bad about his illness for a couple of days. That church would have been transformed by a practice or a commitment to Philadelphia. And you've got your own stories. You've seen situations yourself where this kind of growing affection for the whole community of Christians has not been practiced. We urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. And then in verse 11 we get kind of this threefold picture of how people who live like this live we want you to aspire to live quietly that means not to be troublemakers not to be rabble-rousers now i'm going to give you an extremely important footnote here about the women's issue in the bible in 1 Timothy chapter 2 some of you are aware that there is a place there where paul says I urge the women to be silent. Yes, God bless you. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain silent. That's 1 Timothy 2.12. I want you to make a note for yourself that the word that is translated quiet in 1 Thessalonians 4.11 and the word that is translated "silent" in First Timothy two twelve, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? Is the same word. It's the same word. The kind of quietness that Paul is encouraging the whole church to live in, in First Thessalonians four eleven, is all he's asking for of the troublemaking women in Ephesus. In First Timothy, two twelve, I want you to know it's the same word a sukia, which means to live quietly, decently. It doesn't mean stick a cork in it and don't say a word. We've got a couple of Baptist churches in our area right now that have decided to go in that direction. I believe that to be particularly an unwise choice. I bet the men hear about it when they get home ha. <laughs> We want to encourage you to live quietly, to mind your own affairs. That's right, mind your own business. (laughs) It's a church, mind your own business. Yes? There are people that have to get into everybody else's stuff and to make sure that everybody hears everybody else's stuff. This is a specific command against that. Don't live like that work with your hands the Greeks didn't consider that honorable but Paul is saying to be able to do labor to to get out there and sweat and get dirty that's honorable stuff and you see that he says here so that you may walk properly before outsiders properly actually has the idea of being attractive that we have lives that are attractive we're not troublemakers We're not people who are afraid to work. We're not people who get into everybody else's business and consider that the heart of our conversations. We avoid those things. And in so doing, our lives become attractive to outsiders. And it also has a secondary effect that we end up not in need. We end up not needing to be dependent in our lives. This is what love and life is. Here is the apostle getting back together with his young church again and teaching them more about what it means to live as a Christian. This is part of our message. This is part of the gospel. How do we live in such a way as to be pleasing to God? Pray with me. Father in heaven, we truly are striking out in a direction that it seems like your church in the United States is forgotten as even being important. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be faithful in these things, that we would grow in these things, that they would become characteristics that are distinctive of God's Word Community Church, that we would be people that would be pleasing to you and that we would walk forward in the gospel in the way that you would have it done. We thank you for your grace and love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.